Emily and I went to the European Parliament and spoke there to share our story, just to put some pressure on these people that make the decisions. When these treatments work and you save a child, you know, you save the entire family. I always like to say to always smile every day. Um, my dad did that for me, and I think it made a really big difference in, you know, my attitude and my outlook. Imagine your daughter, age five, has been diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Doctors were initially hopeful about her prognosis, but after nearly two years of chemotherapy, she's relapsed and you're told she is not likely to survive. You have the option of trying a leading edge immunotherapy, but it's only been tested in adults, so doctors can't predict its effects on a child. Would you take the leap? knowing the risks involved and allow your daughter to become pediatric patient one. I'm Todd Poley, and in this episode of Vital Science, we speak with Tom Whitehead and his daughter, Emily, about her brave journey as a CAR-T therapy pioneer, the uphill battle pediatric cancer patients face, and how the Emily Whitehead Foundation supports cancer families around the world. Well, welcome to Vital Science, Tom and Emily. We're honored to have you both here. Would you tell us about yourself and your family? Yeah, I'm Tom Whitehead and um, Emily's dad and the uh, president of the Emily Whitehead Foundation. And this is my daughter, Emily, with me. Hi, Emily. And how would you describe Emily? Um, what are the some of the things that make her so special? Well, I would say, you know, first of all, all that she went through, you know, as a child, um, and to come out of that thriving in life now, um, uh, I would describe her as our hero and uh, very smart, very funny. Um, she likes to have a good time. Uh, she does take her grades very serious, though, when it's time to study. She's very well read. She's an excellent writer. Um, I'll stop there because she'll get mad at me if I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I mean, every day... I wake up thankful that I'm still her dad and um, Carrie's still her mom and that we, we are together as a family. So tell us a little bit about um, how the Emily Whitehead Foundation got started. I understand it's, of course, very near and dear to your heart. Yeah, so when Emily became the first child in the world to have her immune system trained to beat her cancer, and then they put her picture on the cover of the New York Times and just about every uh, news art, uh, magazine or, or newspaper in the United States in December of 2012. It gave international media to us overnight. And along with all that media attention with a new way to fight cancer, it brought us phone calls from parents and patients from all over the world saying, how did you do that and how can I do that? And that kind of inspired us to start the Emily Whitehead Foundation because a lot of people uh, had heard about her name and associated her with this new way to fight cancer. And we wanted them to have, you know, um, a way to get more information that we didn't have whenever we were looking, whenever Emily needed it and advocate for those patients to get treated. Yeah. And when you envisioned the foundation in those early days, um, what was your ultimate kind of dream and 
where have you landed now? Have you kind of met what you set out to accomplish or has it surpassed your expectations? Well, I would say, you know, in the beginning, we just had good intentions and no idea what we were doing other than we wanted to help people. Um, it's completely um, gone past our early expectations. And for us, it's amazing that it's still gaining traction and growing. And we've been lucky to surround ourselves with a great board of directors to show us how to run it like a business. Um, because, you know, we raised uh, over a million dollars with basically just volunteers. And, and now um, we're getting a lot more support because uh, we have infrastructure in place and, and we're learning how to uh, treat it like a business so we can have a bigger impact on more patients. And again, every day our goal is to help other families have the same outcome that we've had. Love to hear more about that. So what drives your mission at the Emily Whitehead Foundation? In the beginning, we were just raising um, funds to put towards more research for less toxic pediatric cancer treatments. And, you know, it turned into so many more phone calls from uh, adult patients um, and just parents from all over the world that we've transitioned now because in the beginning there wasn't much funding for research and now there's a whole lot of funding for research but now the patients that need the treatments can't get to them or can't find them or don't have access so uh, we've transitioned more now into saying who's the next Emily and how can we advocate to make sure it's available in their country or advocate for them to find a treatment before it's too late. It's estimated that between 3,000 to 3,500 children are diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, each year in the United States alone. ALL is a type of fast-growing blood cancer that arises from immature white blood cells. These cells multiply quickly, crowding out the healthy ones in bone marrow and blood. Diagnosis is typically determined through a combination of blood tests to check cell counts, bone marrow samples to scrutinize cell characteristics, and genetic tests to understand the underlying mutations. Although it can be found in adults, ALL is the most common childhood cancer. Children tend to have more resilience against ALL with a higher chance of remission than adults. However, prognosis isn't set in stone. It's more like a weather forecast that can change. Let's hear more about the shifting winds of Emily's ALL experience. Emily was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL, when she was just five years old. What led to the diagnosis? So really, she was healthy the week that she was diagnosed up until the day before. And we were going into Memorial Day weekend of 2010. And early in the week, uh, my wife, Carrie, noticed that Emily had some blood on her gums when she was brushing her teeth. And then the night before she was diagnosed, Carrie called me and said I was putting Emily in the bathtub and she has 21 bruises on her uh, body. And some of them have been there more than a week and they're not getting better. And she actually said, I Googled that today and it came up leukemia. And we were like, oh, it couldn't be leukemia. So let's. You know, if we have to, we'll take her to the pediatrician tomorrow and get her checked, but let's not panic. And then overnight on Thursday, May 27th, she had so much pain in her knees and her legs that she woke up sobbing in the morning, saying there's something wrong with my legs. Um, and by that afternoon, she was on a morphine pump at the Penn State Children's 
uh, Hershey um, Medical Center, um, you know, diagnosed with cancer. So that's how we got started. It was feeling good Thursday, and by Friday she's on a morphine pump, and our lives changed forever. Uh, so your your lives all changed overnight, um, and you you probably didn't picture your life uh, taking the the shape it has as a patient advocate now. How has this affected your family? Well, I'd say it brought us a lot closer, and we decided from the beginning to focus on the positives um, because the negative stuff could be so overwhelming. Um, so each day we tried to make each other smile and lift each other up and, and just stick together. Um, and I look at it as, you know, for the two years she pretty much spent in the hospital at the age of five and six until she turned seven, um, that we, we got to spend all of that time together when really we would have been busy at work and she would have been in school. And um, so even though she had some really horrific times, um, we really became a lot closer as a family and learned you know, what it's like to, to be together every day and, and strengthen our bond with each other. So, Emily, you've turned 18 and kind of grown up before our eyes. And your childhood journey, uh, witnessed by so many of us, has been one of such remarkable resilience and strength. How has this all shaped who you are today? I think it's a really big part of who I am. And a lot of the passions that I have, I wouldn't have today based off of you know, all of the experiences we've had. And um, I'm really passionate about um, the environment and I hope to major in environmental studies in college. And I never would have, you know, been interested in that had we not visited all of these different labs and biotech companies. So um, I think it's, it's really shaped who I am today. And, um, you know, I wouldn't change anything that happened. And I heard that you met your genetically engineered model. Is that true or? I did. Yeah. What was that like? So, it was quite a few years ago, and, you know, I had always known that there was a mouse um, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that they modeled after me genetically, and I had always wanted to meet it because I, I thought it would be pretty cool. Um, and, you know, they said there's no way that they could get me into the lab because, um, you know, people aren't usually allowed in. So one day whenever they were transporting it um, up the elevator, they stopped on the floor that we were on and just took a little pit stop and they introduced me to it and they were carrying it in a little takeout container and it had like some grass inside. Um, so it was pretty cool. And I actually um, wrote about it in my supplemental essay for UPenn, which is where I'm going this fall. Oh, very cool. <laughs> Did they name it? I don't think, I think they just <laughs> called them the Emily mice because they are her genetically. Uh, yes. Yeah. So. Oh, that's so cool. Good for you. Well, aside from having a mouse named after you, is there anything else you want listeners to know about you? I think, um, and this doesn't just apply to me, but a lot of other cancer survivors that, you know, we are not just our stories and what happened to us and not just patients, we're people too. And we have other interests as well. And, you know, being a cancer survivor is just part of um, what makes us whole. Well said. And what is your advocacy role? in either raising awareness or um, providing support for others battling childhood cancer? Yeah, so um, a lot of the pediatric patients look up to me, and I like to advocate specifically for pediatric patients and adults too, but um, I, I understand the pediatric patient experience more. 
Um, but, you know, I think it's important that um, to advocate for less toxic cancer treatments as well, because I spent so much time in the hospital receiving chemotherapy. I had 23 months of failed chemotherapy and 22 days after CAR-T, I was cancer-free. So I think it's, it's really important to advocate for these new immunotherapy treatments, which is what I'm really passionate about. Because as children, I think it's really important to spend less time in the hospital so that you lose less of your childhood as well. So, Tom, I know uh, the journey wasn't um, all kind of perfect and predictable along the way. Um, There were some relapses and there were some treatments that maybe didn't have the outcome you were expecting. Can you tell us about that time in her life? Yeah, so... I mean, when we got started, we were told this is the garden variety kind of leukemia. It's the most curable kind of childhood cancer that you can get. If you have to have a child with cancer, this is the one you want to have. So, I mean, that gave us a lot of hope from the beginning, but it made it even harder uh, when she relapsed. They had told us, you know, if you do 26 months of chemotherapy for a girl Emily's age, that, that was this protocol. And they said, if you just do what we tell you, she'll be she'll grow up and become a grandmother someday and have a happy life. Um, so we tried that in the beginning, you know, just the first couple doses of chemotherapy, Emily developed infections in her legs and almost lost her legs on June 11th, uh, 2012, when we had just gotten started on, um, I'm sorry, 2010, when we had just gotten started on May 28th. Um, so she made it through there and went into the intensive care unit, um, had a really rough start and it changed my perspective right away. And I tell people because I was devastated the first day I walked onto the cancer floor thinking, you know, we shouldn't be here. And then a few weeks later, we were celebrating getting back to the cancer floor with Emily and with her legs still intact. So I realized pretty quickly that if you think things can get worse, they really can. Um, but she did get in remission then in the first month, and it lasted 16 months. So we were 10 months away from thinking we were going to be done um, when she relapsed in October of 2011. So we had routine blood work. She relapsed, and then they told us that day that she would need to get a non-related donor um, because she didn't have any siblings and that there was a less than 30% chance of survival. So that's what got us into trying to go to bone marrow transplant, which ended up not happening. And then instead of going home on hospice, we transferred to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and the CAR T-cell trial had opened the day before. Interesting. So I believe that Emily was the first pediatric patient to receive the CAR T therapy. Um, could you tell us about that type of therapy that, that Emily did receive? Yeah, so when I when I paged them down at CHOP, um, Dr. Susan Reingold was the oncologist that took my call. And, you know, she said this has never been tried before on a child. It's never been tried, you know, before in this cancer at all for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. But, you know, the science shows it should work. And if you would like to try it, we'll introduce you to Dr. Stephen Grupp, who's in charge of the, the trial. And, and they'll extract Emily's T-cells. Um, send them off to the lab and train them to recognize and then kill her cancer. So that gave us hope because we knew um, standard treatment was not going to help her anymore. And we weren't ready to go home on hospice. So that led us to transferring down from Hershey to Philadelphia on March 1st. 
of 2012, and that's when they extracted her T-cells, and they gave her the harshest round of chemotherapy, which was clefarabine, that she ever received, and that completely wiped out her immune system, so she had to stay in her hospital room in isolation for six weeks while they uh, took her cells off to the lab and trained them to become the serial killer cells. Did he say train them to become serial killer cells? Let's take a moment to review exactly what this means from a scientific perspective. To create CAR T cells, scientists collect some of a patient's immune cells, genetically modify them in a lab, and then infuse them back into the patient. In this process, scientists equip the immune cells to have special receptors called CARs. These CARs act like homing devices. They guide the cells to the leukemia cells and stick to them. Once inside your body, these CAR T cells, or serial killers, as Tom called them, go on a mission. They attach to the leukemia cells and activate the immune system to attack them. The best part? CAR T cells remember the fight and are ready to defend in case the leukemia tries to come back. And that's why after 22 months of failed treatment, it took just 23 days for Emily to achieve remission with CAR T therapy. Let's hear more from Tom on what this experience was like for Emily. And was Emily an ideal patient in some way? Was there something that kind of raised her to the top of, um, you know, this being a good potential treatment for her? Well, what they had told us was they actually did think she was the ideal patient to try it on first because she did not have a failed bone marrow transplant yet. She had all her organs intact and did not have an infection um, at the time when they treated her. So they said, you know, they really thought the first patient they would ever get to try it on might be in an intensive care unit already dying whenever they tried it. So, you know, Emily... Um, was actually pretty healthy and walked in to the room the day they gave him to her. And Dr. Grupp came in with them all in one big syringe and just pushed it in over maybe less than 10 minutes and said, now we wait. And we were like, is that it? And uh, he said, yeah, that's all it is. Now let her immune system take over. And, and you know, we think it'll work. So, you know, it, it was like the first day they gave her 10% of the dose to make sure there wasn't a catastrophe. She had really no effect at all and felt fine. And we went in day two um, and she got 30% of her dose and felt fine. And that evening around midnight, she got a fever. And then the next morning uh, when Dr. Grupp showed up, uh, she felt fine and had no fever. So we went, went in and got the final 60% of the dose. And they really said we just split it up because we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but then when she got the final 60% of the dose, it was a real, probably the worst part of her treatment that we witnessed because three and a half pounds of her body weight was cancer. And each one of those genetically modified CAR T cells can kill a thousand tumor cells. And it was killing her cancer so fast that it overwhelmed her system and her kidneys shut down and her lungs failed. And they ended up putting her in an induced coma uh, in the intensive care unit. And she stayed in that coma for 14 days. Oh, wow. So it was a really brutal time. Um, but they worked around the clock to fix it, and that's when they figured out that the uh, tocilizumab medicine would would slow down the side effects of the CAR T cells, and that's 
helped many other patients survive it. Um, and most patients now do not end up in the intensive care unit when they get the treatment. Although there is a happy ending to this chapter of Emily's story, it was not a foregone conclusion. Emily's parents knew that three adults had been treated with the same CAR-T therapy at Penn the year before, but doctors advised not to put too much stock into this. The patients had a different type of cancer, and children often react differently to treatment. Knowing the risks involved, the Whiteheads decided to proceed, making Emily the first pediatric patient ever to receive the treatment, and the first patient of any age to receive it for ALL. And although it was not without complication, Emily's experience ultimately led to the first FDA approval of the drug now known as Kimraya. No other child has received this regimen of Kimraya. According to Tom, the FDA approved 40% of Emily's total dosage, or what she received on days one and two of treatment. But Emily served as a brave pioneer as the first of many children that would go on to achieve remission with this groundbreaking treatment. It's just incredible to hear that after such a long and brave struggle, Emily is where she is today. What does her prognosis look like now? Well, what we've found out since then is when kids qualify for this treatment now that are going to die, they can usually get them into remission around 90% of the time. And the patients that are done like Emily after this treatment is somewhere between 50 and 60%. But when you're a parent living through that, that's a much higher success rate than a bone marrow transplant. I just wanted to say that we are hoping as a family, and Emily especially, that this becomes a frontline treatment someday for standard risk kids with ALL so they don't have to go through the chemotherapy. When it works, it's much less. I can understand why, given what these kids go through. What do you think is needed to ensure that patients, children, and adults really have access to new therapies like this? Well, we we try every day to help improve that. Um, You know, in the beginning, all of the patients had to come to Philadelphia. Um, We've done everything we can to collaborate with other foundations to get it to other hospitals to start with. And then we found when we're in the media... Um, it actually helps get it approved in other countries that might have a, a national healthcare system. Um, so we've traveled, uh, Emily got to travel to Oslo, Norway, and meet the first child that was treated in Norway. Um, we've really advocated, too, because I've talked to a lot of um, parents in South America who are just sobbing because their kids would absolutely qualify for the treatment and they just can't get to it. Um, but again, you know, in the United States, too, um, we did everything we could do to help get that FDA approval in five years because then the insurance companies are covering it, which makes it much more accessible to patients within the United States as well. So from our end, you know, not enough people are getting it yet, um, but we're going to continue to do everything in our power to try to make a difference. And we do that. Sometimes it's just help a, help an adult patient get a flight from San Francisco to Philadelphia to get treatment or Um, help someone line up an angel flight with a corporate jet so they can travel not on a commercial flight where they could get sick um, to get access wherever the treatment is. Um, So we continue to try to do everything in our power and meet with congressmen and meet with government officials uh, from other countries. Emily and I went to the European Parliament and spoke there to share our story um, just to you know, to put some pressure on these people that make the decisions to 
when these treatments work and you save a child, you know, you save the entire family. And it's a great investment because if she went to bone marrow transplant, there's very little chance that she would have been 11 years since she spent a night in the hospital. And that's where we're at now. So on the back end, it saved money there as far as other complications and possibly other cancers coming from the radiation she would have received to go to bone marrow transplant. Over the last decade, um, you, you mentioned lots of collaborations that have had to um, be part of this uh, journey and, and the successful outcome. Can you tell us a little bit more about the scientific collaborations that you witnessed or were aware happened to enable you know, Emily to get that treatment and for the continued uh, development of drugs that you know can help children with cancers? Yeah, so I would say, you know, what we wanted to see is all these researchers, instead of competing to do the same research to get to the treatment first, work together and collaborate. And we've, we've seen that with our collaboration with Stamp to Cancer with Sean Parker's Parker Institute, where they're bringing these top minds together and saying, let's all figure this out together rather than compete to see who can become the first one to get it to market. That way, we're not wasting research funds and Maybe this center works on a different cancer than this center is working on, which in the end leads to more people getting treated. But then on the other hand, we've seen companies like yours um, that step up because when they do have a success, they can't make enough of the treatment. They can't get it uh, to the patients. And there's not enough people working in the industry you know, to create these new treatments if they even solve one or two of the solid tumor cancers. So... You know, we've seen companies collaborate, we've seen mergers happening, scientists working together that didn't work together in the past. And in the end, I, you know, we've gotten to meet some of the top oncologists in the world. And I think when you meet them, all they want to do, their families have been affected by cancer too, and they just want to make a difference. And the companies that are all working together and making these treatments are saving lives every day. The Emily Whitehead Foundation helps further these efforts through fundraising. The foundation hosts a gala where patients and industry professionals can forge connections, swap stories, and celebrate the progress together. In addition, the foundation accepts donations and honoraria for patients to travel and share their stories. Foundation supporters can participate in marathons, attend car races, and purchase treats at local bake sales, all sponsored by the foundation. Donations go toward ALL patients and their families be it to help a patient travel to a long-distance appointment or further ongoing research. Let's hear more from Tom on his vision for the foundation. And so what do you hope the legacy will be for the Emily Whitehead Foundation? Well, I think, well, honestly, we have the name recognition internationally as the place where patients go when they're looking for a new, less toxic treatment. Um, we hope someday to bring in the funds to back that up so we can have an impact on everybody that reaches out. I still work full-time on the power lines. Um, my wife works full-time in research at Penn State University, and I still take all the phone calls I can, but I'm hoping someday that we, you know, that at least I could be able to do this um, after I retire from the power lines and do it, and, and do it full-time because there's so many more patients that need help. Wonderful. So, Emily, you're doing well. Yes. Yes. Feeling good. <laughs> well, we're very um, proud and happy to speak with you. And um, I, I'm just so curious if you and, and maybe you've had this opportunity with the children that you're 
um, supporting, but if you could go back in time and give advice to um, the five-year-old you or to other children going through similar issues, what would you say? Um, I always like to say to always smile every day. Um, my dad did that for me, and I think it made a really big difference in you know my attitude and my outlook. Um, and to also um, just keep advocating for yourself because nobody knows your body like you. And, you know, whenever you're younger, I think that can be a little hard to understand. But um, I still think it's important for younger kids and five-year-old me to to know that, you know, everything was so, so out of her control. But, you know, you still have control over your body and how you feel as well. It is so important to focus on what you can control. Did you encounter a lot of things you didn't expect during your treatment and recovery? I don't know if there was anything that I didn't really expect. The only um, thing that still affects me today is that the treatment removed all of my B cells, not just the cancer. So I do have a suppressed immune system. And um, once a month, I have to get um, B cell replacement, which is just uh, an infusion in my abdomen where um, it just kind of gives you an immune system to fight viruses. Um, so, you know, I didn't know about that whenever I was going through the treatment, but it's just something that I have to do today, and I've done it for so long that um, it's just become a part of my life. But, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that that is the only thing, and I'm super healthy otherwise. That's wonderful. Do you have any words of wisdom for those family members who have children battling a childhood cancer? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really important that for parents of these children to maintain a positive outlook. I know that it can be hard to kind of keep up that front around your kids, but my parents did that for me, and I think it was important that I saw them be strong for me, and I think that that, that really helped me out. And just to, you know, never give up and to always keep fighting as well, I think that's really important. Wonderful. So what's next for you? What, where are you um, off to in your, your next phase of your life here and your next journey? Yeah, so um, a week from today, I'm actually moving into my freshman dorm at the University of Pennsylvania, and it's actually right down the block from where I was treated at uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So it's, it's a real full circle moment, but I'm really excited for this next chapter. Exciting. Congratulations on that. And we heard that you had a pretty adventurous summer. Uh, anything you want to share about your experiences this summer? Sure. So we were able to go to Mexico for 10 days to film for an IMAX movie that will be coming out in the spring of 2024 called Modern Medical Marvels. Um, and for that movie, they wanted to show me thriving today after cancer. And I got to scuba dive in Cozumel and Isla Mujeres in Mexico. And I had some really cool um, experiences there. And I love photography, so I got to do underwater photography as well. And I took some cool pictures of, you know, sea turtles and coral reefs. And I'd always wanted to do that because my dad um, told me stories when I was little about him scuba diving before I was born. So it was a really, really cool trip. And uh, I hope to do it again someday. Oh, how fun. Sounds like it was, you made the most of it. Uh, dad, anything to add that we didn't cover today? I would just add at the end that, that if you're out there and you're the patient or you're the parent of a patient, you got to do all the research you can and then trust your instincts. Um, we tell people that the, the doctors and nurses and staffs at the hospital are just amazing people, but they have to fix everybody 
that's in the hospital and you only have to fix yourself or your loved one that you're there as a caretaker for. So you have to advocate and check everything that they put in them because they are human and they can make mistakes. Um, but we're very thankful for all the, the staff and doctors and nurses and teams that saved our family. And, and now we're very thankful for everyone in your industry that has taken these treatments and, and making the treatments and getting them there in time before these patients are running out. A lot of them are on hospice and they're on their, their last hope. But whenever they call me in the beginning and then maybe six months later, they call me again and say, because you took that phone call, it saved my life or my child's life. That's why it keeps us going every day. Well, thank you both very much. It was an honor and a pleasure having you on our Vital Science podcast. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Tom and Emily Whitehead are co-founders of the Emily Whitehead Foundation. Looking ahead to our October episode of Vital Science, we'll sit down with Bo Bigelow about his daughter's rare disease diagnosis and the community he's building for the foundation for Howe Fountain Syndrome. Did you know that Charles River has a sister podcast, Eureka's Sounds of Science? This monthly podcast shares scientific, patient, and advocacy perspectives on trending issues in the drug development industry. You can subscribe to Vital Science and Sounds of Science on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks for listening.